1 Corinthians chapter 13. Prior to our series in 1 John, we had been for quite some time in the book of Hebrews. Toward the end of the book, in the first verse of the final chapter, Paul wrote this. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, Let brotherly love continue. A simple command which asks quite a bit of us. And that ask begins with an understanding of what brotherly love is, which will be our objective this evening. We're in a little bit of a mini-series on this idea from 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. This is the culmination of a command that we've seen. We, we saw it in, 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 beginning in 1 John 2. We saw it in 1 John 3, now in 1 John 4, that we would love one another. And the question was asked early in our series, Pastor, what does that look like? What does that mean? And so we began a mini-series last time we were together talking about what it means to love one another. And we laid that foundation last time, and now we're going to be building on that foundation Today, before we answer this question, however, what is brotherly love, I want to take a moment to talk about what I don't believe brotherly love is. Uh, There's many a preacher who will make something of a to-do about the distinct nature of the various Greek words that might be translated in our New Testament as love. There are, if you've heard it before, three Greek words that all have the general translation of love. There is agape, there is phileo, and there is eros. Uh, now, when, when you hear those three, it's actually kind of a bit of a muddied situation anyway, because two of those are the verb form, one of those is the noun form. But all of that to say that we have these three general derivatives in the Greek of love. And as it has been somewhat commonly taught, you may have heard this before if you've been uh, under uh, preaching for any... Uh, Um, set of time on this topic, Uh, you've heard that agape love is divine love, unconditional love exemplified in God through Jesus Christ. Then they'll say phileo love is brotherly love, a warm and affectionate sort of friendship type of love. And then eros is a sexual or a physical intimacy. Now, it's worth noting that the word eros is not found in our New Testament, which means the New Testament uses only derivatives of those two types of love, derivatives of agape and derivatives of phileo. Uh, With the word here in Hebrews chapter 13, in our text being that word Philadelphia, uh, yes, like the city Philadelphia, that they call it the city of brotherly love. Um, this word Philadelphia is, in fact, the idea of brotherly love. And, of course, there are several other derivations, both of agape and of phileo. But there are deeper reasons why I'm concerned about this classification of uh, of. These two words. So they'll say agape is a, is a love that, that is um, divine and that is unconditional. And phileo is a brotherly love that is warm and affectionate, a friendship sort of a love. And I don't like that classification. And let me tell you why I don't like that classification. In John chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, we read this. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son and showeth him all things that himself doeth. 
and he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. So here Jesus is expressing the love that God the Father has for him, for God the Son. And as he does so, he does not use the term agape, though, I mean, certainly the love that the Father has toward the Son is a divine and unconditional love, right? There's no question that he has a divine and unconditional love. Uh, this is not saying that God, has, that God the Father has put Jesus into the friend zone here and that there's nothing but, but, but a friendly, warm relationship and that there's no uh, uh, familial son-father relationship here, that there is no uh, unconditional divine relationship here. No, it's not saying that. And yet the term here is phileo. Certainly the love of God for his son is unconditional and divine, leading us to believe that maybe this word is not expressing what some think it's expressing. And again, we see in John chapter 16, verses 25 to 27, these things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father, Jesus speaking to his disciples here. All that day, uh, at that day, excuse me, ye shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God." This time Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's telling them that the Father loves them because they have loved Jesus. And yet both of the times Jesus uses the word here phileo, not the word agape. Certainly the love that the Father has toward us because of the love that we have toward Jesus is intended to be that divine, unconditional kind of love. It is not simply a warm and affectionate, friendly sort of a love. And yet it is phileo that Jesus uses here. And so once again, we find that that classification of phileo simply as some sort of as a brotherly love, as a warm and affectionate, familial type love, as opposed to um, as opposed to the divine, unconditional love, perhaps falls a little bit short of holding up to scrutiny. To this end, uh, I, I, I propose just a, a slight tweak of how some people have seen the relationship of these words one to another. Both of these loves can be divine. Both of them can be unconditional. But the common thread that connects the usage of agape and its derivatives is that it seems to be a love that is manifest in sacrifice, a sacrificial type love, whether or not it's an unconditional or a conditional love, whether or not it's seen divinely or even in those who uh, are not connected to God, a a carnal uh, type of, of love, if you will. It would be a love that's manifest in sacrifice. And the common thread that connects the usages of phileo in the Bible, I believe, and the various derivatives of that, is that it's a love, whether it's conditional or unconditional, whether it's a, a spiritual or carnal, it is a love that is manifest in loyalty or constancy. And so as we're talking about the idea of brotherly love, Hebrews chapter 13 idea of let brotherly love continue, it's not necessarily saying that this is a, a, a classification of a lower type of love, a less conditional or less divine love than other loves that we are called to express or to manifest, but simply it is one that is highlighting or that is emphasizing the idea of constancy and loyalty. Both Agape and phileo in those senses, sacrifice and this constancy or this loyalty. These are both important to the Christian life. They are both important to God. And in many ways, they are both or certainly both can be divine. And with that, I'm not going to make much more of a distinction between the words. 
as we consider love over the next few weeks. And what I mean by that is uh, I'm going to be jumping between passages of Scripture that are speaking of love, and some of them are going to be a phileo derivation, and some of them are going to be an agape derivation, and I'm not going to distinguish between them. I'm not going to make a big deal out of that. Some of the teaching I will invoke in order to fully grasp what the Bible commands us to do when we are called to love one another will be predicated on the root of either of those words, and I am not linguistically um, concerned about doing so. So just to let you know that that's how I'm going to approach this. I'm not going to make that distinction very strong. I do not think it serves our deeper interest to hammer on the distinctions between them for our purposes over these weeks. So as we consider the idea then of loving the brethren, last time, remember, we talked about this idea of um, love and loving everyone. And we talked through the um, parable of the Good Samaritan, and we talked through Jesus and how he had, how, how he calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves, calls us to love one another. But then Paul in Galatians chapter 6 says, as you have opportunity, do good to all men, but especially to those that are the household of faith. And so we see that while we are called to do good unto all men, we are also called to place higher in favor and priority those who are of the household of faith. And as we work through all of that together, we recognize from the scriptures that there is a strong call to take care of those of one's household. There is a strong call to take care of those who are widows. And there is a strong call to love and to indeed favor those who are of the household of faith. And then from there, we, we talked about the various other gradations of interactions with people. And the whole point of that was that I do not have to make myself as vulnerable to the person walking down the street as I would say, as I would make myself vulnerable, let's say, to the people that are sitting in this room. That the love that I'm going to manifest to the people in this room, while it is no greater of a true love than what I would manifest, it's not as if my love is lesser to that person walking down the street or to that person in the church across the street, yet I will still have a heightened degree of favor or priority upon those whom God has placed into my life, given me responsibility over in my life. So we, we laid that foundation, and this week we lay the foundation for this idea of brotherly love. And if we're going to do so, then first we have to understand what love itself is. And to, for that, you can go nowhere better than 1 Corinthians 13. Now, don't check out on me just because I said 1 Corinthians 13. And I know you want to. The great chapter of love, the one that everyone has hanging on their front door and needle pointed on all of their pillows and you see it everywhere and it's on mugs and it's on everything, right? And so I know that you're saying, oh, we're getting a 1 Corinthians 13 message. Well, yes, you are getting a 1 Corinthians 13 message. It's a very familiar passage, but I hope it's not so familiar that it's bred contempt. Familiarity does breed contempt. And if nothing else, you can say, well, at least it's not a Christmas message, right? So there's not that familiarity. So stick with me in 1 Corinthians 13. Let's read it together. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or as a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. So we lay the scene here for Paul's considerations. Paul began in 1 Corinthians 12 talking about spiritual gifts. 
And he was focusing particularly upon a gift that he's focusing upon in 1 Corinthians because the Corinthian church was deeply focused upon this gift, and that is specifically the gift of tongues. As a matter of fact, he will devote almost all of 1 Corinthians 14 to speaking about this gift as well. And this was one of several manifestation gifts, we might call them, that the Corinthian church just was absolutely enamored with. They were, they were completely consumed with the desire to receive for themselves these particular gifts that were manifest in the early church, that were manifestation gifts, uh, tongues, healing, those sorts of things. And they were so interested, they were so enamored with these manifestation gifts, tongues in particular, that they were elevating those who had or used them above those who did not. And it was becoming a source of pride. It was becoming a source of division in the church. And most certainly God does not gift us so that we might divide ourselves one against another. Ironically, that is what denominationalism has more or less done today. But that is certainly not what God has intended of his church. So Paul spoke to this in chapter 12, and he will continue in chapter 14. But in chapter 13, Paul expresses what he calls a more excellent way. If you're there, if you have your Bibles open, you can see in those last verses of 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says in verse 29, I don't have it up on the screen here. He says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And then he says this, he says... But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. So actually the best gifts there, when he talks about coveting the best gifts, that's what he'll come back to in 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to cover it uh, on, on Tuesday night uh, uh, in a couple of weeks as we're, we're talking through that series on women in the church, and we address 1 Corinthians 14, and we'll be talking about that more. Um, but the best gift, he says, is really the gift of prophecy. The ability to speak clearly in your own tongue so that people can hear it and be edified. So he's saying covet earnestly that gift. Covet earnestly simply the ability to tell people what the Word of God says. But he says even above that, even outside of prophecy, and by the way, prophecy there is not telling the future. It's not foretelling, it's forthtelling. As we look at what prophecy is, as he defines it, prophecy is when you speak to the edification of all as it relates to the word of God. A little bit outside the scope of what we're talking about this evening, but that's what he's saying there. And that's the best gift that he's calling the church to covet. And yet he says, even above prophecy, even above the ability to clearly articulate the word of God in a way that edifies the believer, he says, covet this above all things, a more excellent way. He says, there is a more excellent way. And this more excellent way is not a gift. It's not a spiritual gift. It's not something that you may have more than I have. It's not something that is, uh, that is shrouded in a mystery. It's not something that is given more to some than another. The more excellent way, he says, is 1 Corinthians 13. So he says, I show you a more excellent way. And then the next thing he says is, have charity. This is the more excellent way. So he says, that if he were to speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if he were able to manifest these multiple languages throughout, or through the Spirit of God and through the power of the Spirit, but, and, and he had all faith, so much faith, in fact, that he could move mountains in the, the, the vernacular of Jesus saying, if you had faith as a mustard seed, you could say to that mountain, move, and it would move. 
And he says, if I had all knowledge, but I have not charity, if he had all such manifestations of the spiritual power, but did not have love, Paul says, it would amount to nothing. Now, don't be thrown by the word charity. We today think of charity as an act or indeed an organization designed to meet the needs of those who have a need. But that's more or less just a colloquial use of a much broader term. Charity is another word for love. We might call it love in action. In our Bibles, it is not simply about giving to the needy, but it is about expressing love in all its forms. It is the word here, agape, all throughout 1 Corinthians 13, by the way. So we can quite comfortably replace the word charity with love without doing any disservice to the text. So Paul says, if, I, if, if he had all of these manifestations of the spirit power, whatever spiritual gift the Lord has given you, and if you're a believer, he has given you one, whatever spiritual gift the Lord has given you, if you manifest that gift, if you exercise that gift in the church uh, to the best of your ability, but you don't do it in a manner that reflects charity... Don't expect that it's doing anything as, as it ought to do for the Lord. And certainly don't expect that the Lord will reward you for it. He says that there is nothing. He is nothing if he has not charity. He says, though he might bestow all of his goods to feed the poor and even give his body to a martyr's death, give his body to be burned for the cause, for the church, for the gospel. He says, but if I'm not exercising charity, there's no profit in it whatsoever for me. Now, this is pretty dramatic language. But the reason why he says this is because outside of charity, outside of love, outside of the exercising of, of what I am called or manifest to do in the manner that God has called me to do it, which is a reflection of himself and God is love outside of love. I'm operating outside of God. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. It doesn't matter whether it looks spiritual or religious, whether it looks pious or not. If I am outside of love, I am outside of God because God is love. So then what does love look like? Verses 4 through 7. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. So we come to the very well-known list of characteristics that define love. And as we step into this list, I want us all to be very deliberate in our listening and in our consideration. If when we talk through this list, your mind turns to anyone other than yourself to compare yourself to them, to make yourself feel good about how you're doing with this list because you're doing better than so-and-so, whether or not that's true, you have already fallen short of what you're supposed to be doing with this list. This list is for you to hold yourself up to, to look into the mirror of God's word and to see this list and to say, where am I on this list? Not where am I as opposed to my wife or my sibling or my neighbor, 
Not where am I in comparison to someone else's efforts on this list. Where are you in comparison to the list? You stand alone with God and with his word as we consider these things together. How are you doing? This is about you and this list. So we're talking about loving the brethren. And in time, we will see how these things play out more specifically. But I would expect that as we walk through this list, the Spirit of God will already be indicating to our hearts ways that we are or are not living up to what this text presents. Don't resent that, Christian. Don't resist that, Christian. Allow the Spirit of God to do His work in your heart that as we walk through this list and the Spirit of God says, that one you need to work on. Don't resent that. Don't resist that. Allow the Spirit to do His work. Position yourself to understand your relationship to the concepts presented and exhort you to greater heights of determination to love as you ought to love because if we're going to love the brethren, it's going to start with this list. And that's what we're talking about. Loving the brethren. Because the Bible says, He that loveth not his brother knoweth not God, for God is love. So this is, there are real stakes to this information. So then what do we find? Charity suffereth long, is long-suffering. Now this corresponds to what we find in verse 7, which says, beareth all things. Proverbs 10, verse 12, quoting, uh, quoted in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, saying that, that love covereth all sins. Now, the idea here is not that if you love someone, you will cover up their sin. The idea of love bearing all things or love suffering long is not the idea that if you love someone, then you're going to allow them or expect them or, 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 uh, or desire them to persist in their sin without calling them to it. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But rather that when you love someone, you are willing to suffer long with their words, their actions, their interactions. You have a vested personal interest in enduring what might be their foolishness, what might be their unkindness, what might be their, 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 their wicked choices with the hope and desire that you can help them get to the other side with minimal consequences and a new perspective. Love is long-suffering. Charity is also kind. The word kind is an interesting one here. It's used only here in the New Testament. But speaking of a similar idea in verse 7, not just beareth all things, but believeth all things. It's a predisposition toward mercy and a determination not to give up on another. So Paul presents charity in a positive force of determination. Patience in wanting, desiring, and working toward the good of another even at the expense of myself. That's that sacrificial love. To be long-suffering means you're suffering long. To suffer is to have something happen to you that you don't want to be happening to you. And yet love is long-suffering. Love is when you see that person whom you love and you then they may be hurting you, they may be hurting someone else, they may be hurting themselves, and yet you're going to stick with them. Because you love them. So Paul presents charity as this positive force. But he also continues with the negative, stating not only things which charity does that are selfless or sacrificial, 
but also what charity refuses to do. Charity does not envy. Allowing my heart to resent another because of what they have that I do not. There is no love in that. There is no love in envy, Christian. To the contrary, love compels me to rejoice in the success and wellness of another. Charity refuses to vaunt itself, to elevate itself at the expense of others or above others, allowing my heart to compare itself against others for the purpose of consoling myself, drawing honor to myself, or gaining an interest over another. Charity refuses to seek her own above her brother or behave in an unseemly manner in order to elevate myself or to lower another. Charity refuses to embarrass them, to tear them down, to shame them, to guilt them. Charity seeks the best of the one that I love, and that not because they deserve it the best, but because I have chosen to love them, and this is what love does. And that's love, Christian. So is that what your loving relationships look like? As we think of loving the brother, is this the brethren? Is this what our relationships look like? As we think of those elevated uh, venues or contexts of love that we talked about last time, those of your own household, taking care of the widows, specifically in the vulnerable, is, is, is the idea there. And then those that are of the household of faith. Does this look like the love that we have? Is this the love that we have toward one another in, in this church? Is this the love that you're interacting with in your families? Charity refuses to be easily provoked into anger, frustration, or discontent. To that end, charity refuses to assume evil of someone's actions, of someone's words, or of someone's intentions. Charity instead will go out of its way to assume the best of one's interactions with another. And I really want to pause on this one because in my counseling and in my interactions, uh, both uh, in the church as well as in the jail and everything in between, I have found this to be one of the most insidious ways that our love can be tested, tried, and undermined. Among those you love, are you determined to assume that their actions, their words, and their intentions toward you are right rather than wrong? When I'm giving marriage counseling, one of the things that comes up again and again and again, and I'll say, I say it again and again and again, is assumptions are the death of relationships. But if you're going to make an assumption, assume for the best, not for the worst. And you know what? If you're going to assume for the best, most of us will probably just stop assuming things because <laughs> that's not the proclivity of our hearts as it relates to assumptions. And yet that's the call. So that you don't take up offenses where offenses are not there, are not obvious. Assuming offense rather than experiencing offense. And quite often in relationships, offenses are assumed more than they are experienced. And this is so very common among personal interactions. To assume that someone did something to you on purpose. To assume that pain that they inflicted upon you was intentional. To assume that the wrong they committed was malicious. And what's very interesting and, idea and ironic about this in the way or in, in the Christian life is, is that this standard of assumption never goes both ways. And let me explain what I mean by that. 
To whatever uh, degree we assume that what people do or say to us is intentional or malicious, to that same degree we hope that when we do wrong, people don't judge us by that same standard. Let me give you an example. And this is one that I think most of us can relate to. When you're driving in a car and someone cuts you off, they they cut you off to get to the turn lane or whatever it might be, what wells up in your heart is all of the reasons why they did that 100% on purpose, and they had absolutely no justifiable reason why. As a matter of fact, they woke up that morning thinking, I'm going to cut this person off. That that is what runs through your mind. You, you You know they did it on purpose. You know that it was malicious. And you assume all of these things of them because you're angry at them for what they just did. And yet, when it's time for you to get near missing your turn, and you have to cut someone off and go, and you wave at them as you're cutting them off, and you just hope that they understand that that, that you were distracted by the kid in the car or that you're, you're in a real big hurry and you need, to, you need to make that turn and you don't have time to turn around or whatever it might be. You are hoping that the person in the car behind you when you cut them off will give you the benefit of the doubt. See, because you're a good person. And this isn't what you do every day, but when they cut you off, that's what they do every day. This, they woke up thinking they were going to do that. They, they have planned that from the beginning. And this is actually kind of how the human heart works, right? We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt But we are not hasty to give that same benefit to others. Well, charity asks us to reverse that. Assume the best of your interactions with others. Charity thinketh no evil. And is not easily provoked. How hasty are we to think no evil of others in our interactions with them? How hasty are you, husband, wife, to think no evil of the things that your husband and or wife do that that, that you struggle with, that you dislike, that annoy you? How hasty are you, siblings, to think no evil of your other sibling when something happens? Who took my fill-in-the-blank? How hasty are you to assume evil, wrong intent, malice, the worst, of your sibling? Or are you willing to assume that maybe there's a misunderstanding? Are you willing to assume that maybe there was not malicious intent? That's charity. Charity refuses the temptation to assume the worst and instead, if we are going to assume, charity is determined to assume the best intentions. Charity does not rejoice in iniquity. Charity rejoices in truth. Now, this is some of what we spoke of last time when we considered the gradations of personal interaction with those uh, who are in our circles of interaction and influence. That when we say we love someone, this does not just mean that we're patient with them and kind to them, though, of course, it means those things. But it also means, as a part of doing what is best for them, that we are intentionally unwilling to rejoice in or to affirm their sinful actions. I cannot love someone while encouraging them in or supporting them in sin. They are incompatible with one another. Because I know that their sin is directly harming their soul. And so I can't rejoice in their sin. I can't encourage their sin. I can't affirm their sin because I'm not going to encourage, rejoice in, or affirm something that is damaging their soul. 
I will suffer long with their sin. And it will be suffering because I will be hurt as I see them going down the path of destruction. I will suffer long, but I will not join them in it. But I will not encourage it, but I will not affirm it. I will show them all the respect and the kindness that love intends, but I will not pretend that they aren't offending the righteousness of an almighty God. We often term this loving the sinner by hating the sin. And that idea is directly connected to a refusal in my heart to rejoice in the iniquity of the ones that I love. But take note that we have already covered this idea, suffering long and kind. So loving the sinner but hating the sin does not mean nasty thoughts and words and deeds toward the sinner because of their sin. That is not, that is not the idea here. See, because you're not, you're not their Holy Spirit, nor am I. It is not my job to shame, guilt, or otherwise uh, um, uh, make someone so miserable that they leave their sin behind. The Spirit of God is very good at chastening His own. And if they are His, then the Spirit of God is more than capable of doing that for them. But I will not rejoice in that iniquity. I will rejoice in the truth. And even as it relates to the sins of those we love, remember what it is that God uses to call sinners to repentance. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says... The goodness of God leads to repentance. And so may our charity be the thing that those who are walking in iniquity see in our lives a long-suffering and a kindness on, on their behalf and yet a refusal to rejoice in iniquity. Charity is determined instead to rejoice in the truth and to rejoice with those who walk in truth. And this is well summarized in verse 7. I've already mentioned several of these. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. All four of these ideas are definitively outward focused. Not considering myself, but the one whom I love. Yearning for, longing for, working for, waiting for, hoping for their best good, their wellness, and their spiritual success. And this is charity. This is determined love. And whether it be toward God or man, believer or unbeliever, blood family or church family, these are the characteristics which ought to prevail in our hearts and in our interactions. So that next week as we go into Romans chapter 12 and we're thinking through the most definitive commands that we have in in the scriptures on loving the brethren in the church interaction setting, this is the kind of love that's being spoken of here. And now we're going to see what that looks like in the church setting. But I don't want to end here. I want to finish the rest of 1 Corinthians 13 because I said I'm preaching 1 Corinthians 13 and I don't, want to, uh, I don't want to give you less than what I said I give you. So, verses 8 through 12. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. So we come back to our context here where Paul is advocating for the more excellent way, right? 
Paul says there are these gifts, and, and not, all, uh, not all are apostles, not all prophesy, not all teach, not all do miracles, not all speak in tongues, not all have healing, and, and covet earnestly the best gifts. And he'll say in chapter 14 that the best gift is, in fact, the fourth telling of the Word of God with clarity. But he says, even more than that, I have a more excellent way for you, and this is the more excellent way. And now he is once again, he is advocating for why it is that charity is the more excellent way. Paul says that the reason this is the more excellent way is because charity doesn't fail. Prophecies will fail. And the idea, uh, we'll, t- we'll talk about what that means in a minute. Tongues will cease, knowledge will vanish away. These are the three. Prophecies will fail, tongues will cease, knowledge will vanish away. Now, there are many ideas about what this means, and there are differing ideas as to what this means. Uh, um, a lot of people in the cessational movement, um, the idea that, that sign gifts are no longer the way that God is working in our in our um, age, which uh, we are, which we agree with, that sign gifts are not a regular way that God is working in this age. But um, not to say that we're going to limit God if He chooses to to, to use such gifts. But um, many people will say, "Well, this—that's what this is saying—that that tongues will cease, and that prophecies will fail, and that knowledge will vanish away." Um, but I, I don't believe that that's what that, that's what Paul is saying here. Uh, I think that that's a, a fairly short-sighted view of what Paul is attempting to communicate here. To the contrary, I think Paul is talking much bigger picture. The proclamation of truth lasts as long as there are people to hear and mechanisms for dissemination, but they are all limited and very earthbound. When I talk, uh, we talked about this in Sunday school this morning, right? And we use that kind of pithy phrase, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks, right? And the idea there is I get up here and I spend an awful lot of time every week telling you stuff. But that only goes so far. I have... Based upon the 1 Corinthians 14 gifting idea of prophecy, your pastor has the gift of prophecy. I have the capacity to foretell the word of God in a way that edifies the believer. But that only can go so far with any one of you. Because knowing it is only, I I was going to say half the battle, it's probably not even half the battle. Knowing is, what, maybe a third of the battle. You all have a lot of stuff, I have a lot of stuff too, that we know that we're not doing. So knowledge, prophecy, the foretelling, and the knowing, there's two of these, can only take you so far. They're very earthbound. And then, of course, he puts tongues in there in the middle. The manifestation and effects of speaking in tongues is limited in scope and in application and certainly temporal and earthbound. But love is not an earthbound idea. Love is effective upon the earth to nearly every good thing. Love can bless people. Love can help people. Love can even change people. Perhaps in much the same way that, we, that the manifestations of prophecy and tongues and knowledge could do. But love does so much more than that. Love echoes into eternity. Love lived out in me is living out the fundamental reflection of my Father in heaven. We warned a few weeks ago about false teachers. And one of the interesting things about false teachers is while there's always a, a, a degree to which they're off, false teachers tend to actually say a lot of the same good stuff that true teachers say. And then they just couch it in some measure of error that will direct people the wrong way. But you know what can't lie? Love. 
Because love is a reflection of the divine. Love lived out in me is the ultimate expression of faith, a faith which above all things pleases God. Love is the fundamental reflection of my Father in heaven. The extent to which I love will redound in the day of judgment. And since love is the very essence of God's character and of God's word, and God's word does not return void, love cannot fail at its purpose. Now, that doesn't mean that the person who is receiving said love will invariably come around to, say, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it cannot fail at its purpose because it is the reflection of divine. I can preach at you until I'm blue in the face, and it may or it may not change a thing in your heart. But when I love you, I pour Christ into you. And while that still might not change you, it has to affect you. So Paul says that we know in part and we prophesy in part. This is the other distinction. I can only tell you to the extent that I know what to tell you. This is a really big book. I don't know it all. You don't know it all. And even the parts that I know, I don't even understand all of them. I can prophesy in part. And I can only prophesy of the things that God has seen fit to reveal to me. We're going to talk about that more in a couple weeks in Daniel chapter 7, connected to Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy 29 says. And I don't have those answers because only the Lord has those answers of the secret things. We know in part, we prophesy in part, that that my capacity to teach you the things of God is only to the extent that God has seen fit to reveal certain things in his word. I can't take you beyond this because I don't know beyond this. And again, I don't even know all of this. But do you know what is not in part? Do you know what has been revealed to us to the very deepest degree? Do you know what we can know 100% the same today on earth as we will in heaven? Paul says we see through a glass darkly. The idea there is that there are things about the, the world that is to come. There are things about the spirit realm. There are things about even things that we interact with on this earth or, 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 or within the context of this temporal world. There are things that we don't fully understand. But the one thing that we can understand in its fullness, the the deepest depths of the knowledge, everything that God has to say about the topic has been said to us, is love. What more can he say about love than Jesus Christ on the cross? He has shown us love to the very deepest degree. And he has shed that love abroad in our hearts when we accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. Which means while I can get up here and I can prophesy in part and I can impart knowledge unto you in part, do you know what we can do in full? We can love one another. We speak about the spiritual and the eternal, but only to the extent that God has given us the insight in his word to do so. And there's so much that we do not know, but there is one aspect of life and godliness which God has seen fit to reveal in full The end times, shrouded in mystery. The nature of the interaction with the spirit realm, mysterious. The character of prayer and how prayer affects the heart of God, I don't understand it. The power of the Holy Spirit to change hearts and lives, total mystery to me. 
But the one thing that God has shown in fullness is his love. Manifest in its fullness in the life, in the ministry, and in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So you know what? It's all well and good that we can get up here and we can talk through and we can study through the things that are knowledge and prophecy. But let's seek the more excellent way above them all. There's not a single application of love which is still in the darkness to be revealed at a later time. Paul says it here, but that's also what we read in 1 John, was it not? Beloved, let us love one another, 1 John 4, 7. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifest the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. This is the manifestation of God's love. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the definition of love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. No man has seen God at any time, but do you know the closest thing we can get to seeing God? Loving one another. Because when I love you, I show Christ to you. When you love me, you show Christ to me. Knowledge is not perfected in us this side of eternity. And to that end, prophecy is not perfected in us this side of eternity. But love is not only able to be perfected in us, love is commanded to be perfected in us. Let us love one another, made clear unto us by the finished work of Jesus Christ, placed into our hearts, by belief in the same. That is why this topic is so important, Christian. That is why this has become a (laughs) mini-series. That is why we must not fail to understand the Bible's teachings on this topic because there is no excuse for us in this one. If you know Jesus Christ, if you have experienced His salvation, then you know love to its perfection. And not only do you know it to its perfection, but you are called by God to reflect it back to others in the same. So Paul says that like a child who grows up and in doing so puts away childish things, because when he was a child, he understood and he thought as a child, which is fine for a child, but is insufficient for a mature adult. So too, we who are in Christ in our immaturity, might seek unto and divide over various manifestations of gifts and the like. That's what he was telling them here. What he was telling the Corinthian church is, here you are fighting and, and bickering and dividing over who has what gifts. And from the beginning of 1 Corinthians, you know, some are of Paul, some are of Apollos, right? They were bickering and arguing about who was, who was led to the Lord by Paul and who was led to the Lord by Apollos. And then they're bickering and arguing. Uh, they're dividing over the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11, right? And, they're, and they're, they're withholding the Lord's table from those who are poor. And then they're getting drunk and, and, and being gluttonous with those who have, to, have much. And they're dividing the church over that. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, they're dividing the church over who has what spiritual gift. And Paul says, you're acting like children. But when you become an adult, you put away the childish things. And the childish things, it's not spiritual gifts aren't the childish things. The childish things is elevating that. 
elevating that above the thing that matters the most. Because if I'm exercising the spiritual gifts, but I'm not doing it in love, I'm not doing the church any good. We've talked before. We talked about it in the Weaker Brethren Principle, of which we will come to in a few weeks in this mini-series. It's a wonderful thing that we have freedom in Christ, that we have liberty in Christ, and that in our freedom and in our liberty, we have rights, in a sense. But my rights, my liberty is not the highest law. Love is the highest law. And every other law submits to the law of love. Because that is the mature Christian doctrine. And when we became mature believers, if you want to be a mature believer, we put away the childish things and we seek unto that which is the highest, the more excellent way. And that way is to love one another. And in doing so, we live up to our spiritual birthright. We pursue those things which make for an eternal investment rather than a temporal validation or elevation or glory. The mature believer does not rest his focus and priority upon those things which he sees through misted glass, but rests his eyes first and foremost upon those things which shall abide even when he knows as he is known. Even when he, even when we step into eternity and we are given that knowledge that right now is completely obscured to us. And so these things are presented to us in the final verse of 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul says, And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. There are three things that we carry out of this world and into eternity. The things that are done in faith, the hope that we have thus walked in, in Christ, and so the charity that we have exercised. But the greatest of these, Paul says, is charity which brings us face-to-face with ourselves. Again, nobody else. You're not thinking about how your husband lives up to it, how your wife lives up to it. You're not thinking about how your sibling lives up to it, how your pastor lives up to it. How about you? Not you and me. Not you and dad. Not you and wife. Not you and God. Excuse me, just you and God. Just you and the Word. Just you and God. As we progress through these weeks, considering the practical manifestations of loving one another, as next week we talk through Romans chapter 12 and what loving one another looks like in the church Christian context, and then as we walk through the various other things uh, that, that, that the, the Word of God will tell us, the various other um, um, applications that the Word of God will give us as it relates to what loving the brethren, what loving our neighbor looks like. How are you doing on simply prioritizing love in your life? Are you willing to do this thing, to set yourself aside? Are you determined that you will love your brethren as you ought to love your brethren? Does love have that priority in your life? Or are you still kind of stuck on the childish things? Are you willing to take love and put it to the very top of the system of laws in your life? So that though it might rub you the wrong way, to be long-suffering and kind. Though it might rub you the wrong way to think no evil. Though it might rub you the wrong way to not vaunt yourself, to not envy, to not be puffed up. 
Are you willing to submit yourself to that higher law? Because that's what God has called us to. Because that's what was manifest in Christ, shed abroad in our hearts. And who are we to not pay it forward? Are you willing to live in spiritual maturity rather than spiritual childhood? Where your interactions are not driven by self, but by the selfless determination to reflect the virtues of charity toward and with those with whom you interact. And if this is not you, then the next natural question is... Why not? What's holding you back from such obedience? Is it that you're not in Christ? Have you never come to the place where the love of God has been shed abroad in your hearts through the finished work of Jesus Christ? You don't know this love. You don't understand this love. So you cannot relate to this love. And you say, I don't want to to live this way. Well, yeah, you're not going to want to live this way if you've not come to understand it. Well, if you're there, would you come to understand it today? Would you come to Christ today? Would you acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you've fallen short of God's righteousness, that you cannot save yourself, but that you need Jesus Christ to do for you what what you can't do for yourself? And that he already accomplished the work on the cross through his death, his burial, his resurrection from the dead. And if you will but acknowledge and receive that, believe on that for yourself, he will save you from your sins. He will give unto you, he will shed abroad in your heart that love that we're talking about. What's holding you back from such obedience? Is it the lie of self? Where your heart tells you that to express this kind of love, the kind of love that 1 Corinthians talks about, to express this kind of love for your brethren can only end with you unhappy and unfulfilled. That's kind of the temptation, especially if you've been burned before. Living in the pain of those that have hurt you. And so your heart is saying, nope, nope, this is not for me. I cannot love in this way. I will not love in this way. It will only lead me to unhappiness and unfulfillment. Your heart's lying to you. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? If this is the fear, and it's not a fully unfounded fear... Indeed, even the love of God shows us that this kind of exercise of charity can come with its fair share of pain. I mean, Jesus did end up on the cross after all, right? But do you remember what we said about this a couple of weeks ago in 1 John 4? The Bible does not tell us that Jesus loved us for the joy of how we would treat him in return. Does it? The Bible does not say that Jesus loved us for the joy of exercising that love, as if the actual exercising of that love was something that Jesus really, really enjoyed doing. Yes, I I get to pour myself into people that hate me today. Yes, this is great. That's not what Jesus said when he woke up in the morning. Why did Jesus do it then? For the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. We don't love because it's easy. We don't love for what we get out of it in this life. We love in hope, in faith. Faith, hope, charity, these three. We exercise charity in faith and hope, knowing that there is a reward on the other side because we have be 
because we have lived like our Savior. And there's nothing greater than that. It is enough for us that we be as our master. And if I can but taste a little bit more of the likeness of Christ through a long-suffering and a kind love that will think no evil, though it might redound to some temporal sorrow, some temporal loss. Christian, that's worth it. If I can but be like my Savior. For the expectation of hearing well done. What the expression of this kind of love towards others means not for your days in this life, but for the life that is to come. Love is not only an action toward the brethren. Love is an investment in eternity, Christian. To this end, let us be determined to love as we ought to love, in obedience to, for the glory of, and indeed as a reflection of, our Heavenly Father. And may God give us the grace to live that way this evening. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.